Pentagon has officially bought and burned 9,500 copies of Lieutenant Colonel Anthony Schaefer's memoir called Operation Darkheart. His book was about going undercover in Afghanistan, um, and it basically points out a pre-9-11 data mining project called Able Danger, which is extremely um, expository. So we're just wondering, why why isn't this a bigger story all across mainstream media right now that the Pentagon has bought and burned almost 10,000 copies of a book? Why isn't this a bigger story? And why is only Fox News seem to be the only um, media organization that's covering this right now? It's very, very suspicious. Yeah, it's it's like the media is... You know, if you go, if you search for it on Google News, you can find about 100 articles about it, but most of them are just kind of repeating the same information. And none of them are really connecting the dots. I mean, they're very easy to connect. It's like, why is this story important? Why, why would the Pentagon want to burn, you know, almost 10,000 copies of someone's book? Um, it's because of the passage in the book about Able Danger. And Colonel Schaefer, you know, he's, he's admitted that that's the reason why um, the Pentagon destroyed them. In that section of his book, he basically clearly lays out that they had a picture of Muhammad Atta linked to all, a lot of these other hijackers and other, you know, supposedly Al-Qaeda members. They had a chart showing that Muhammad Atta was linked to all these other people about a year before 9-11. What that does is it puts a huge chink in the armor of the of the Pentagon's, you know, 9-11 official narrative that, you know, we didn't know who these people were. It was a surprise attack. They were sleeper cells and all this stuff. Yeah, it seems like they were really rigorously cataloged and mapped out in, in this project. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they hired a, a company to make a chart for them. Um, they had... I think something like over 50 terabytes of data on this investigation. It's it was a it was a huge data mining operation um, that's basically just been brushed under the rug. Yeah, and then you see um, Kurt Weldon saying that he was forced to destroy numerous terabytes of data. And when he asked what a terabyte of data was, he didn't know. They said it's one-fourth of all the information in the Library of Congress. So that's a gigantic amount of information that he was ordered to destroy in regards to this operation. It's very, very suspicious. We wanted to play uh, just a clip of um, Lieutenant Colonel Schaefer on on Fox News, on Judge Napolitano's show, um, talking about this. Colonel Anthony Schaefer joins me now. Colonel, welcome back. Just just to set the picture, you are career military, now retired. You were in charge of a group of military intelligence officials overseas called Able Danger. Part of their responsibility was to find out who knew what, when, where the bad guys were, where the Taliban was, where Al-Qaeda was. The idea was that they were on this fact-finding mission trying to figure out what intelligence was available to help fill in the missing gaps relating to the failures before 9-11. I volunteered to my army chain of command and said, they may already know about this, as a matter of fact, they probably do, but just in case they don't, here's a one-page summary of what I want to talk to them about, and I'd like to give them the background on able danger. All right, at the time you met with this uh, 9-11 commissioner in uh, Philadelphia in 2005, correct me on my dates, the 9-11 report, that 500-page monstrosity that a lot of us, certainly in this business, read. Had it been published yet? It had been published in mouth, yes. Okay, so it was published without the benefit of what you knew. Right. Did you ask him at, at that lunch meeting in Philadelphia whether or not anybody on the 9-11 Commission had an agenda or was covering up for somebody or was protecting somebody? The, the essence I, I received, and I asked that question directly about what the nature was of why they did, you know, what was the focus of the commission. And during that conversation, this commissioner said flat out that everybody on the commission was covering for someone. 
everybody on the commission, you mean the commissioners themselves, was covering for someone. That was the way I interpret that statement. Were members of the 9-11 Commission, did they each have their own agenda, according to your friend on the commission? That's correct. Everybody had some issue they were looking at for someone else. Wow. So there's a lot of things that never made it in that 9-11 report. Judge, that is the bottom line. And I think it's been revealed over and over for the past, past, past two years that things were either by negligence left out or, and I believe, by purpose left out. All right. All right. So Anthony Schaefer alleges on Judge Napolitano's show that every single person in the 9-11 Commission has had something to cover up and that they were all covering for something else and someone else. It's just a really expository revelation, and this should be picked up by everyone right now. Yeah, um, and we have a little a list here of basically what the 9-11 commissioners did before they were on the 9-11 commission, um, what their conflict of interest was. Basically, almost all of them had some sort of interest to serve. Some of them were, on, were attorneys for airlines. Um, some of them were just ex-defense contractors or even current defense contractors at the time of the commission. And just to clarify, Henry Kissinger was initially picked to head the commission. He's a known war criminal. He oversaw legal bombings in Laos and Cambodia during the Vietnam War. It's, act- it's absolutely shocking that we would even consider him to pioneer um, you know, the, the 9-11 commission. And so after the 9-11 widows refused to have Henry Kissinger be the head of it, we picked Hen- Philip Zelikow, a uh, good friend of Condoleezza Rice, co-wrote a book with her, uh, penned the controversial Bush Doctrine, the doctrine that said that we could preemptively invade a nation if we think that they might be accumulating a threat in the future. So these are the kind of people that were involved in the commission. And then the other strange thing about this whole um, Fox News dovetailing this investigation into Able Danger is they were the ones who actually covered all that those Kurt Weldon and Anthony Schaefer things before, years and years ago. And now they're kind of bringing it back. Like shows like Freedom Watch, Judge Napolitano's show. It's interesting because, you know, Fox News always has some some kind of hidden agenda or motive for what they're doing, you know, political motive. So what could be the reason why they're covering 9-11 truth or, or or you know normally this would be something they would antagonize as a 9-11 conspiracy right so it, it's just kind of weird it's like what do you think about that i mean what i think yeah i mean you see that with glenn beck's show you see that with judge napolitano's show it seems like a lot of different personalities on fox news are pushing 9-11 issues and also libertarian issues and they're talking a lot about libertarianism and small government and it's just it's extremely suspicious to me it's very very suspicious yeah, like the Fox Business Channel now basically has, you know, their flagship shows are like diluted, watered-down libertarianism shows, like the John Stossel show. It's like they're they're using libertarianism, you know, kind of like as a populist kind of thing, idea to try to draw people in, but then they're diluting it and watering it down in such a way where you don't really get the meat of a lot of the libertarianism, anti-government stuff, like, you know, removing our military from and all the overseas bases, remo- you know, dismantling not, the Federal Reserve, yeah, <laughs> anti-preemptive wars. I mean, the whole war on terror, generally speaking, is completely um, it's diametrically opposed to a libertarian philosophy. Exactly. Exactly. And, and for Fox News to be promoting these ideas, it's just really interesting to watch them try to, you know, morph into something else after the Ron Paul movement started. Um, the Patriot movement created all this energy. It's it's like Fox News just keeps trying to steal it away. And yeah, they're, they're siphoning the energy from, from the original Tea Party grassroots Ron Paul absolutely. movement. And, and they've jumped the gun on everybody else. I mean, they're the largest entity right now that's kind of 
using that energy and trying to you know represent it as something else when during the last eight years they were the biggest warmongering fearmongering organization yeah and almost now it's almost like the libertarian slant that they're trying to portray is almost like another form of fearmongering it's like fearmongering against like socialism and and uh you know big government like only now that obama's in office now we're scared of big government yeah yeah it's like you know, it, it's it's very hypocritical. It is. It's, it's, extreme. it's extraordinarily hypocritical. <laughs> it's really, yeah, it's very uncharacteristic of what we know of Fox, who we know Fox really is and what they've been doing. So we should just, bottom line, we should be extremely skeptical of this information output. Yeah, it's really, really curious. Um, someone like Glenn Beck, you know, we, <laughs> we're going to come off as kind of hypocritical here because for the last two episodes we've been talking about how absurd it is that the left wing keeps talking and about Glenn Beck and, and, you know, raising him to this pedestal, you know, like he's a king or something of the right wing. But to me, he's one of the most interesting cases because as his show goes on, he's siphoning more and more energy away from the actual Patriot movement. You know, we've been hearing little whispers recently that, you know, people from in the Patriot movement are like, oh my God, like Glenn Beck is, you know, he's dropping truth now. Like, you know, he's talking about the socialists, you know, it's like. It's hyperbolic and it's like just riddled with fallacies and character assassinations. You know, my, my brother and I just found this giant box of Newsweek's Time magazine's papers the months following 9-11. And a really interesting excerpt from one of them talked about the three most prominent reporters at the time that 9-11 happened. It was Tom Brokaw, Walter Cronkite. And Dan Rather. And, and, and basically they were just saying, you know, it's going to be really interesting to we're holding these reporters feet to the fire and seeing how they're going to interpret the events from now on. And we're all going to be paying attention to these these very credible journalists and how sad now. Yeah, oh, my, how things have changed. Oh, my, how then. things have changed. You know, here we are who, nine, <laughs> nine years later. And who are the three most prominent journalists put out there in the forefront? Let's see. Glenn Beck. Um, John Stewart, yeah, <laughs> um, maybe Keith Oberman or uh, O'Reilly or Glenn. You have Glenn Beck now, who's just completely full of hypocrisies. I mean, you have him a, a year after nine eleven saying that he hated the nine eleven victims' family members, and now you have him pioneering the nine twelve movement. And it's just so sad that to think of nine years ago, we actually had very prominent, credible journalists telling us, you know, what's going on, and now we have these these clowns. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It's ridiculous. I do want to clarify that I do think that our actions in the Middle East are perpetuating more terrorism. In fact, that's that's the science of it. That's the purpose um, to create more terrorism, to create more acts of violence. But the problem is that terrorism is so ambiguous of a term that it could be used to, to describe anything. So we do believe that there, of course, our actions are perpetuating more terrorism, more, um, you know, out of desperation, basically, when you look at the the reasons for someone blowing themselves up. A lot of things that people characterize as terrorism are just simple uh, military actions against our our military, um, you know, v- via insurgents, uh, the, the attack on the NATO convoys, um, you know, as we go through Pakistan to get to Afghanistan to bring our supplies, those are described as terrorism. But I mean, Anytime anyone fights back against us in a in a war in these new wars, is that terrorism? Just because they use guerrilla tactics, anybody who uses guerrilla tactics in these foreign countries is considered a terrorist. Um, 
Yeah, which is so interesting. Yeah, you see the Antifada, they threw stones. I mean, that was, you know, you could say we we said that they were terrorists for doing that. But is what the United States is doing around the world, is that not terrorism? Constantly fear-mongering people and perpetuating the most horrendous violent acts and crimes, is that not terrorism? We wanted to we wanted to segue into the blowback theory. You know, we have Chalmers Johnson writing his book about blowback, talking about our our policies around the world, how they affect other countries and, and basically what that leads to. It's it's the theory of blowback. These policies affect other people around the world and they take retaliatory action against our country because of what we've done to them. And that seems to be the underlying logic. I mean, if you're looking at the war on terror, the fundamental logic of the war on terror, that's really the crux of it right there. It's it's like the crux of it for people who believe in the 9-11 official story and the war on terror who are more liberal and left-leaning. Right. It's like that's their reasons for believing it. That they're you know It's kind of like, well, of course we're going to get attacked by terrorists because we do all these bad things around the world. Um and it's interesting to watch people, you know, like Glenn Greenwald, you know, we're, we're big fans, generally speaking, of most of his stuff. I mean, he's he's 90 percent of the time he spot on, you know, he spells it out exactly how it is. But, you know, recently it's it's like um, when this Times Square bomber was sentenced to life in prison, he wrote an article basically, you know, saying, well, he, you know, here's this guy who, you know, put a bomb in a car in Times Square and these are the reasons why he said he did it is because of our military actions in Pakistan and and so forth so so look you know this is what our our actions in other countries are causing here you know we're getting we're getting blowback here it's almost like the same line of thought the same fallacious logic that gets neoconservatives and republicans into that trap of thinking you know you know, th- this is a linked together network of people who are, um, you know, who are continually, uh, you know, threatening us. It's it's adding validity. It's it's they're not undermining the logic. The fundamental logic needs to be undermined. The fact that there's no threat, that this is all completely BS. I mean, the problem with the blowback theory is that it's not undermining the crux of the issue. It's not undermining the logic of the war on terror, which should be undermined at every chance we get because there's no threat to completely perpetuate this this logic that there's this external threat that's all-consuming is dangerous and it perpetuates terrorism. I mean, that, that's completely, yeah, it's fallacious logic and, and it needs to be pointed out that the blowback theory is not, it's not valid in this in this regard. Yeah, I mean, it just calls into question the, the way that the term is being used. I mean, you could say that blowback is the real thing insofar as that there's a lot of people getting angry at what our military is doing around the world. But as someone from the United States who bombed Times Square, um, is can that be considered blowback? I mean, if you're wondering what some of the noises were... Uh, <laughs> We're recording outside today. It's a beautiful day today. Um, so we apologize for some of the airplane and car noise. Um, but yeah, basically, it, it's just it's just as damaging for someone from the left, and as analytical as Glenn Greenwald is, to try to link something like the Times Square bomber to the war, overall narrative of the war on terror. This, this is not these, – these things cannot be connected. If this guy had said that his motives for putting this bomb in a car were because he was pissed off at his girlfriend, nobody would care. His sentence probably would have been a lot less. You know, he wouldn't have gotten life in prison. This fiction that, that somehow someone who does that, who ha- says that their motives are because of our military action and he happens to be Muslim, it shouldn't make a difference what his motives were. 
Shouldn't make any difference at all. Like this general who who shot up a military base. You know, it was, if he was an Arab or Muslim, you know, it would be looked at as like a Columbine kind of event. It's just these endless, you know, ways to link things together, like six degrees of separation mm-hmm. or something from, you know, some yeah. overall force. And it, yeah, I mean, it seems like people like Glenn Greenwald and other liberal commentators like Chris Hedges who really get it and they really hit the nail on the head when it comes to the fact that we're not living in a democracy, the fact that this is completely exaggerated. Um, but they don't go far enough. They don't go far enough to undermine the logic of it all. Yeah, and it's and it's hard to tell if they're trying to play devil's advocate or trying to kind of, you know, not preach to the choir. They're kind of framing it in such a way to get other people to understand who who believe in the war on terror. Um, it's hard to tell if that's what they're doing or if they genuinely believe that. And it just makes me think, you know, when is the war on terror going to be over? The war on drugs is is still going, you know, since we yeah. were children. Yeah. When is the war on terror going to go away? Is it ever going to in our lifetime? Are we going to stop hearing about these, you know, these shady, anomalous, you know, linkages between all these people? I mean, it's kind of depressing to think about, you know, there's, there doesn't seem to be an end in sight. No, it's just, a, it's just a continuous excuse to bolster up our military apparatus. Here we have military industrial complex just exponentially growing, bolstering it up year after year. And it's all just, I mean, the justifying cliche of the war on terror. Yeah, and things like, just little things like, you know, not being able to walk through an airport screener with your shoes on or, you know, being able to bring liquids on a plane. Those things will probably never be allowed again. No. Those are, those are here to stay. Absolutely. And um, the, the, the rapid scan machines, now they're in, they're in uh, the Oakland airport. Or no, they're, yeah, they're in the Oakland airport. They're in the Providence airport. I mean, I just, I just went to those airports recently and I just was appalled at the dehumanization. There was a pregnant woman recently who was humiliated into going through them. They, they, uh, I mean, it's it's radioactive. It's, it's radiation. It can damage you. It's not healthy and it's actually completely dehumanizing us. And I just can't, I can't handle it. (laughs) I just thought of something (laughs) kind of weird. Um, it's, it's like when you're a parent, you know, and you have a little boy, it's like one of the first times to go to the pediatrician, you kind of have to explain to them, you know, the, the doctor's allowed to, you know, you know, touch mm-hmm. you here. It's not bad. You know, the same time the, the dad's kind of, you know, stay away from strangers. Don't let anyone touch you there. You know, it's like now besides the doctor, now it's like you got to explain to your kid that when you walk through an airport screener, like someone else needs to see your private parts. Yeah. Someone else needs <laughs> to see your naked body outline. Yeah. I mean, what if a little kid saw, I mean, it's just like... <laughs> <laughs> it's yeah it's so outrageous it's so outrageous now son um you know the airport screener he needs to see your private area <laughs> when you go through it's okay i mean at least it's 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 still optional i mean i i'm, I'm just you know i re- i'm dreading the day where it's actually mandatory to go through these screeners there was a little sign that said you have the option of going through but if you don't go through them you will be administered a thorough pat down and that was very you know, that was very specified. You will have a thorough pat down. I mean, that to me, that's that's such an invasion of my rights and privacy. By by emphasizing, you know, you're going to get you're going to get patted down real hard. It's like they're trying to <laughs> I mean, it's like, a, you know, it's like on one side you go through a scanner and you're basically virtually stripped naked or you can go through a thorough pat down. They obviously want you to go through these scanners. Like but a traumatic experience being <laughs> yeah, patted down rigorously. <laughs> yeah, exactly. By these TSA representatives. I mean, who the who the hell are they? It's just ridiculous. I mean, we heard those stories of, of um, 
I think it was like a Bollywood movie star that had hit. He went through a rapid scan machine and they were passing around images of his naked body. So them claiming that they don't store these and archive them is absolutely a lie. Yeah, it's just it's just uh, very weird. It's like going along with that Bollywood thing, you know. How much is it on the black market? How much can you get for a picture of George Clooney's penis? You yeah, know? yeah. <laughs> it's like it's like uh, now you can actually you you can you can find out how large someone's penis is from a, <laughs> a virtual <laughs> body scanner. <laughs> It's so outrageous. That stuff used to be, you know, you used to be able to keep that to yourself. Now you can't even keep that to yourself. Yeah, I can't wait till the paparazzi get their hands on the the body scanner images that are being stored. Yeah, <laughs> or like that scene on Spinal Tap when uh, when uh, <laughs> the drummer goes through the security checkpoint of the airport, and they 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 wave the metal the wand over his crotch. It's like now you'll be able to see who's got a, who's got, some, some <laughs> who's got a there. pickle. Yeah. <laughs> so one of the other headlines that that's going on, you know the. Senate Bill 1070, the the really extreme, almost police state measure that that's going on in Arizona right now, where they can arbitrarily stop anyone, demand their papers. It's just totally demonizing the population there. We have Governor Jan Brewer. Um, I just had the honor of seeing her speak for the first time <laughs> on a on a debate, and it was so horrendous. I mean, the fact that this woman's actually the governor of a state is absolutely shocking she cannot articulate a sentence she cannot even describe anything she she's like john mccain but like worse she's like a female version of john mccain who looks like her botox injections like started melting and she's just like on pills it's bizarre yeah either she's she's pilled up all the time or she's just extremely dumb dumb and unarticulate it's it's really incredible that this yeah that someone like this could actually become a governor i mean this is like someone you would see in the movie idiocracy yeah i mean it's worse than sarah palin in my opinion oh, I, by far which is really yeah scary. at least sarah palin you know has some you know down home charm to her yeah. like this woman is ridiculous on this woman's level. dangerously dumb dangerously dumb and and we wanted to play a clip of this outrageous debate where she just gets caught red-handed where she cannot speak at all um and it just looks like she's on ambien or something like valium or something she can't even get a get a thought through and then we wanted to play a clip where you know during the senate bill 1070 she was trying to hype up the fear of legal immigration in Arizona, and she kept making these statements that there were these headless bodies being just being discovered in the desert, and it was happening all over the place. And everyone was just like, "Oh my God, there's there's beheadings going on in the Arizona desert. I can't believe it." And it was just hyping up that fear to try to pass the Senate Bill 1070, and all the police reports and the um, the coroner's offices around around that area kept saying, "We have never seen a beheading here. We've never seen a headless corpse in the desert." And so it got to the point where finally she was confronted by numerous journalists saying, Jan, why won't you, will you retract finally, after all these months, will you finally retract the statement about these headless bodies? Because it's completely erroneous. It's totally false. And she just totally ignores it. It's the most shocking thing ever. You're asking her a question and not just one person. It's like five different people badgering her, trying to make a statement of why she made these lies. And she just runs away. Finally, we hear from... Jan Brewer. Thank you, Ted. And it's great to be here with Larry, Barry, and Terry. And thank you all for watching us tonight. I have uh, done so much, and I just cannot believe that we have changed everything since I become your governor in the last 600 days. Arizona has been brought back from its abyss. We have cut the budget. 
We have balanced the budget, and we are moving forward. We have done everything that we could possibly do. <laughs> we have um, did what was right for Arizona. I will tell you that I have really did the very best that anyone could do. We have pushed back hard against the federal government. And I never said uh, that there were beheadings in Arizona. Which beheadings in Arizona would you, were you referring to? Oh, our law enforcement agencies have found um, bodies in the desert, uh, either buried or just lying out there that have been beheaded. Why wouldn't you lift hands the comment we've made earlier about the beheadings in the desert? Seriously, that's a serious question, Governor. Well, this was an interesting evening tonight, and of course you saw a complete... Uh, a display of the difference between myself and Terry Goddard. Okay, so we will continue about uh, to move uh, forward. Okay, but Governor, seriously, the fact is, if you're talking about, you were complaining about Terry Goddard and unions and people not coming to the state. Maybe people aren't coming here because you're making comments on Greta about headless bodies? The, 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 the big thing that didn't happen tonight was Terry Goddard never gave us a plan. Terry Goddard has never had a plan. If he has, he hasn't shared it. It's, a, it's about time that he steps up and brings us a plan. This being governor is not an easy job, Terry. You need to get your plan out. And what about, what about the headless bodies? Can you answer the question, Governor? Please answer the question. About the headless bodies. Why won't you recant that? Do you still believe that? Come on, Governor. Okay, thank you all. Yeah, if only if only the reporters um, when dealing with the federal government's claims of terrorism would be as aggressive and uh, interrogating yeah, as, they, right? as they were with her. I mean, you know, it, it's basically she's doing she's just trumping up. You know, it's like Mexican terrorism, basically. Right. You know, be afraid of the Mexicans. And what's really sad is she's ahead in the polls and probably is going to win the governorship. I'm sure because you know, one of the best ways to drum up support is to make you afraid of people who aren't like you. You know. Yeah, us versus them.
and and we wanted to we wanted to segue now into into talking about Iran. Um, you know, it seems like we're we're shifting our focus now on Iran. We've we've been we've been talking about them for a while. Here they are, sandwiched in between Afghanistan and Iraq. Uh, we're saber rattling the hell out of them. We are just completely going after them. We just uh, slapped a bunch of sanctions on Iran um, for their human rights abuses. Yeah, Hillary Clinton um, made an announcement that we're going to sanction Iran again uh, because of their human rights abuses, torture, things that happened during the you know the revolution from a couple of years back. And one of the things they list in it is waterboarding. <laughs> and I mean, we don't even have to lay out the absurdity of that, you know. It's just interesting. I mean, a lot of other countries, yeah, you know, that just came out that Iran had sentenced that woman to death by stoning, which was a huge international story. Yeah, it's tragic. I mean, it's it's awful. Uh. It didn't actually happen yet because of, of an outcry worldwide, but her name was Sakina Mohammadi Ashtiani. She was a 43-year-old mother of two, recently sentenced to death by stoning for adultery by an Iranian court. It's been postponed because of the international outcry against this human rights abuses, but... You know, at the same time, and we're putting this on the forefront, at the same time, Afghanistan, Saudi Arabia, Somalia, Sudan, Nigeria, Iran, Pakistan, they all stone people to death. And here we are, giant allies with Saudi Arabia. You don't hear us pointing their human rights abuses out at all. No, I mean, it just it just calls into question, what is the hidden agenda behind us going after Iran this much? Um, you know, no one will ever really know militarily or strategically what what we want to achieve there um we can only speculate but clearly you know these these selective pointing out of human rights abuses yeah when you put it in the context of china and the united states when you're looking at the number of total ex- executions in their population the united states is really far up there yeah i mean we rank right behind iran in a number of executions yearly it's it's interesting how many similarities we share with iran's totalitarianism yeah, but, we're, but, but, you know, unlike an overtly totalitarian state, we're, we're operating under a soft fascism. It's a fascism that we, we don't feel necessarily. We feel free still. We feel like we're living under a democracy. But in reality, I mean, we have one out of every 100 Americans are in prison. Our incarceration rates are the highest in the entire world. Yeah, we're, we're, we incarcerate a higher percentage of our population than China, Iran, any other country in the world. And, and we hear these talking points often. We hear Iran's the number one exporter of terrorism. They're continuously defying the um, nuclear nonproliferation treaty. Just all these things. And, and, of course, the old adage that Ahmadinejad keeps repeating the mantra that Israel should be wiped off the map, which is actually a giant mistranslation. The Guardian breaks that down really well. Yeah, and some other things that we've been hearing about Iran over the years, that Iran is an aggressive en- entity that wants to wage war with its neighbors in Israel. Um, and also the one that was a hot topic, you know, th- maybe three or four years ago that Iran was supplying was the largest contributor to the Iraqi insurgency, that they were basically propping up, you know, the right. supposed terrorists we were fighting over there. But in reality, Iran isn't, isn't aggressive at all toward its neighbors. You know, Ahmadinejad, he likes to act aggressive. Yeah. You know, he likes to, he likes to talk a big game. But when it comes down to things that they've actually done... Um, you know, the last military action that they've been involved in was the Iran-Iraq war. You know, a lot of people listening to this program probably know a little bit about the history about that. But, you know, the CIA was in part funding both sides of that war, the Iraqi side and the Iranian side. Absolutely. We were, we were selling weapons and drugs in other countries. The CIA was 
to help fund a proxy war. Mm-hmm. We like to do that. Yeah. We like to keep both sides going for our end goal. Uh, one, one of my favorite interviews I've seen with Ahmadinejad is actually with George Stephanopoulos. You know, he sits down and, and starts this interview with Ahmadinejad and is completely, it, it's outrageous. I mean, the interview is just him introducing his, the Ahmadinejad segment by saying, Ahmadinejad is suggesting that Osama bin Laden is living quietly in D.C. And then, of course, when you watch the interview, he says nothing of the sort. In fact, he's mocking George Stephanopoulos because he said people are saying he's in Iran. What do yeah. you have to say about that? Yeah. Like he was like making the accusation that Osama bin Laden is, <laughs> is hiding in Iran, you know, um, and it's it's really funny just to see how differently we treat someone who, you know, we hate, basically. Yeah, exactly. Like Ahmadinejad, what other world leader, if they came here and did an interview with us, would we treat that rudely? Yeah. I mean, we wouldn't. It, yeah. It's, un, it's, it's unheard of for an American reporter to be that combative and that rude to a world leader. Yeah, and, absolutely. Like, even going Condescending. Back, He's, like, so condescending to this head of state. Yeah. I mean... It's just it's just funny the the lack of respect in comparison to other people they would interview. Someone like Mike Wallace also a couple of years back did an interview with Ahmadinejad where it was very similar. It was it was this combative tone. You know, it's almost like these reporters think if they're not combative and they're not really adversarial towards Ahmadinejad, they'll be looked at as being like, you know, promoting his ideas or something. It's 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 strange the way that that switch gets flipped. Yeah, and I mean, if we're looking at totalitarian states that we're scared of having nuclear weapons. It's just interesting that, yeah, I mean, North Korea is totally closed off. They have nukes already. Here you have um, Kim Jong-il's successor. They're both completely insane. They've said over and over again that they want to destroy um, <clears throat> South Korea, etc. Why? I just don't understand why we're focusing so much on Iran. I mean, I do understand because there's obviously some sort of motive a by our military. Agenda. Yeah, there's a, to- there's a total hidden agenda. Um, you know, we, we've been inching closer and closer towards Iran since this war happened. I mean, there's, there, you know, Seymour Hersh exposed the fact that we were doing CIA operations in Iran. Mm-hmm. Who knows what contribution we had to that revolution, you know? Yeah, I mean, yeah, basically we should be contextualizing Iran with the rest of the world, taking these, these blanket statements, blanket generalizations out of the vacuum that the media is portraying them and really analyze them and scrutinize them and contextualize them with other totalitarian regimes. Why are we allies with Saudi Arabia and Egypt when they are horrendous human rights abusers? Yeah. Um, I mean, North Korea, back to North Korea. I remember when they did their first nuclear test, uh, the entire Western media was just like, oh, it's, it's not a big deal. That was a dud. That was a weak. That was a, a meager nuclear detonation. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, just imagine what would happen if Iran decided to do a test. Oh, yeah. We would before they even got a chance to do the test Israel would go in there and bomb their their bunker yeah I mean there'd be a bunker buster nuke already down there it's just incredibly it it doesn't make any sense why we focus on Iran unless you, you unless know. we just want to take over that whole area they're just kind of the wedge between these two countries that we're occupying and we just want to get them out of the way yeah and if we ever actually did a military incursion into Iran, it would be a huge disaster. Oh, they yeah. have a fully functional army. You know, compared to Afghanistan and Iraq, they would be it would be ten times more dangerous and a quagmire. Yeah, it would be <laughs> awful. So we're just 
you know, we're just trying to slap all these sanctions on them and just saber rattle them until until they react so then we can justify either an invasion or a bombing. I mean, we've had every one of our leaders in the Bush and the Obama administration saying that a military option is definitely not off the table. So that's, I mean, that's definitely being considered. And, and the fact that Ahmadinejad is a blowhard and he likes to be very adversarial, it, it helps the U.S.'s portrayal of Iran to always have him kind of coming out and, and uh, you know, defying the administration. So right now we're going to play that clip from George Stephanopoulos where he interviews Ahmadinejad um, and, you know, kind of just is extremely condescending and arrogant to him. Let's roll it. You called Secretary of State Clinton an enemy of Iran. Do you consider President Obama an enemy of Iran as well? I consider that there is a difference between Mr. Obama and Mrs. Clinton. But I'd like to ask, is Mrs. Clinton a friend of Iran in your opinion, as an American? In your mind, do you think she's a friend of ours? You're not concerned about sanctions, even though it's not just the United States, it's France, it's Great Britain. I spoke with President Medvedev uh, in St. Petersburg. He said now it's time for sanctions against the Iranians as well. Iran is becoming increasingly isolated. We will not accept something that's being forced upon us. The issue that three or four countries possess a nuclear bomb and want to prevent the others from its peaceful nuclear energy goals, it is in violation of laws and against justice, and we will not accept it. Therefore, let's put it aside. This is not something that by threatening Iran or putting pressure on Iran will force Iran to change its positions. This is not something that will work. Is Osama bin Laden in Tehran? Your question is laughable. Why? The U.S. government has invaded Afghanistan in order to arrest bin Laden. They probably know where bin Laden is. If they don't know where bin Laden is, why did they invade? First, they invaded. Then they tried to find out where he is. Is that logical? Do you think this is logical? What I think is that you didn't answer my question. Is he in Tehran or not? Our position is quite clear. Some journalists have said bin Laden is in Iran. These words don't have legal value. Our position towards Afghanistan and against terrorism is quite clear. Is it true or not? Maybe you know, but I don't know. I'm asking you, you're the president of Iran. I don't know such a thing. You are giving news which is very strange. So let me ask it a different way. If you did know that Osama bin Laden was in Tehran, would you show him hospitality? Would you expel him? Would you arrest him? I heard that Osama bin Laden is in Washington, D.C. No, you didn't. Yes, I did. He's there because he was a previous partner of Mr. Bush. They were colleagues, in fact, in the old days. You know that. They worked together. Mr. bin Laden never cooperated with Iran, but he cooperated with Mr. Bush. My favorite part of that interview is that the, it's just an example of how condescending and, and, and barbed you know, the, George Stephanopoulos says during that interview, Ahmadinejad kind of responds to George Stephanopoulos' question with a joke, and uh, George Stephanopoulos goes, no, you didn't. Yeah. No, you didn't. Ahmadinejad says, well, I heard that Osama bin Laden is <laughs> no, living, didn't. Is living this, in Washington, D.C. And he's like, no, you didn't. With this big smug smile, yeah. smile on his face. When it's a response to an equally absurd question, right. he's insinuating that bin Laden is in Tehran, and that like, right. like Ahmadinejad is giving him safe harbor. <laughs> it's so outrageous. Um and yeah, I mean, if you're looking at countries that, that already have nukes, I mean, Pakistan, North Korea, Israel, India, and South Africa. So 
you know, and Iran has has basically gone along with the nuclear non-proliferation treaty. They've they've gone along with the, what is it, the IAEA? Yeah, all those countries that you just mentioned have nukes. Um, you know, who's to argue? You know, who, who's the most dangerous country that has nukes? I mean, I would argue between you know the newest countries that have nukes, probably the two most dangerous ones are Israel. <laughs> In North Korea, possibly, or Pakistan. I mean, even India. I mean, India and Pakistan have been fighting over Kashmir for a very long time. They're pretty much mortal enemies. I don't know if you guys have heard of the movie The Second Civil War. Um, It was a movie uh, done by Joe Dante in the mid-'90s where Phil Hartman played the president, and it's basically about what would happen if India nuked Pakistan. And it just goes off into this whole thing. But, I mean, it's, it is a realistic scenario. It, it's, it's absurd that two mortal enemies have nukes right next to each other. And, and we're it's sitting totally here, untalked about. Yeah, and we're just sitting here, you know, harping on Iran's nuclear program when there's absolutely no proof that they are enriching uranium for nuclear weapons. You know, we're, we're drawing all these conclusions. Like we said before, if you pay attention to all this news from the American media in a vacuum about their nuclear program, you would think that they were just caught with a nuclear bomb. It's just really reminiscent of the Condoleezza Rice, Colin Powell. You know, we have to we have to watch for the mushroom cloud. I mean, or we we can't wait for the mushroom cloud. I mean, it's just that fear mongering <laughs> of nuclear terrorism. Back in September of 2009, Iran was supposedly caught red-handed making a secret facility where they're enriching uranium, and, and the, you know the Western media was like, "Look, Iran, we you know we got you." And, and, and it was Iran itself which notified the IAEA of this facility. The facility was far from operational. Um, there's no evidence that it can produce weapons-grade material. And 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 basically, Iran said that it would permit an IAEA inspection. Yeah, I mean the. According to the, the, the steps necessary uh, to do this, they've, they follow the protocol pretty much to the letter. Yeah. Um, it wasn't that they were caught doing anything. They actually notified the IAEA. They're the ones who told them that they had this facility. So everything just gets inversed. It's like the way the media portrayed it is they were caught. Yeah. I mean, the CIA spokesperson at the Washington Post, David Ignatius, um, I'm actually not sure if that's how you pronounce his name, but he said that the confrontation with Iran today is the Cuban Missile Crisis in slow motion. That is a direct quote. Um, and then it goes on to say, it's hard to see how this one will end short of military confrontation if the Iranians don't start bargaining for real. Bargaining, I mean, what else do they have to do? They've opened, they've opened their doors for inspection. They've followed all the protocol. They can't develop nuclear energy or they can't. It's, Ending um, short of a military confrontation, that's pretty That's pretty intense right there, coming yeah, directly from the CIA It's just a selective, selective enforcement. Um, yeah. You know, Obama announced back then um, in September of 2009, quote, Iran is breaking rules that all nations must follow. The funny hypocrisy about that is Iran is actually a member of the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty. Everyone says that they're violating the treaty by trying to build nukes, but there's no evidence that that's what they're trying to do. It's all based on assumption. It's all based on this this rhetoric, you know, the same similar rhetoric we heard about Iraq. Yeah, I was just going to say, isn't it so funny? It just brings us back, brings us back to the propaganda from 2003. You know, the the enriched uranium and and the biological attacks and the nukes and we can't wait for the mushroom cloud. I mean, it's all do we not learn? Do we not learn from this from this rhetoric that's just totally baseless? When do we learn? 
We don't. And, and it's funny how some, you know, a country like Israel, um, they haven't signed the nu- nuclear nonproliferation of treaty. Not. They have never admitted that they have nukes, but we never. Yeah, you know, it's just kind of like they're just they just don't admit it, even though it's known. Of course, they have nukes. They sold nukes to, to South Africa. Yeah. A little backstory about about their nuclear program. The guy who actually exposed their nuclear program, he went to a reporter in the UK to show him these pictures of the nuclear program. Mm-hmm. The reporter was just astounded by what he saw, you know, and he was like, I know that if we release this information, it's going to be a huge story. Be be very careful, he told this guy. Right. Um, the guy didn't listen to him, basically. Um, you know, it's a really sad story what happened to him. He was seduced by mm. this beautiful uh, Mossad agent, basically. And uh, they, they couldn't, they didn't want to kidnap him in the UK and take him back to Israel because that would kind of make the West mad. So they took him to another country where I think it maybe was Turkey. They went on vacation in Turkey and that's when he was kidnapped. Um, yeah, he was, I mean, what it, was like the, it was like the typical femme fatale, you know, classic spy story. I remember story. reading that and it's just so funny. It's like, really? The guy fell for that? Yeah, apparently really sad. the Mossad must have great, uh, <laughs> you know, some really hot agents. <laughs> um, and, and yeah, let's go back. I know we mentioned this before, but that, that, you know, that mantra that we hear all the time, just hammering down from all the talking heads about the fact that Iran wants to wipe Israel off the map. We hear that over and over and over again. Yeah. And, and when, when they, when they say it, they, they're usually trying to evoke uh, some sort of Holocaust yeah, against they're, the they're, Jews. Yeah, they're trying to say that Iran wants to nuke, basically nuke Israel yeah. and destroy the entire and country. They want to commit genocide on the Jewish no, race. No, that's what Israel did to Lebanon. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's um, this guy from, uh, from, I think it's from The Guardian. Yeah, The Guardian. His name is Jonathan Steele. He basically breaks down how... Um, how many different translations there were of that statement and how the New York Times actually was the one who promoted that mistranslation from the get-go. He says here, Jonathan Steele says, New York Times um, was one of the first papers to misquote Ahmadinejad, came out Sunday with a defensive piece attempting to justify the reporter's wiped-off-the-map translation. The problem with that is, is he doesn't use that term. You know, most translators who have translated this say that he's actually talking about a time, not a place. Um, he's referring to, you know, what he calls the Zionist regime, uh, the Israeli government. He is disagreeing with the way that government is acting, and he's basically saying he wants that regime to go down. But but it's just funny how just a simple mistranslation where you actually make it sound like a place, like he wants the country to be wiped uh, like off the map. He doesn't want it to exist. It makes it sound like he literally wants to physically destroy it. Yeah, Jonathan Steele says, you know, his translation is, quote, the regime occupying Jerusalem must vanish from the page of time, which goes along with it. We're talking about the regime right now, the Zionist regime. So it's just, yeah, I mean, it's still, it's still extremely aggressive, but it's not saying that he wants to destroy Israel. And I just, it's just very important to say that because we hear that mantra so much and it's used as such a, as a talking point and it's a very divisive, divisive talking point. You're saying, well, do you agree that, you know, do you agree with Ahmadinejad? It's like, well, of course not. But the whole point is that he's not saying what people think that he's saying. We have to distort what he's actually saying 
so that we can portray him in a certain way. We yeah. want to portray him as this guy who's anti-Semitic. Um, he, he's a Holocaust denier. Um, but we conflate that with the fact that he's somehow some sort of Nazi who wants to kill all the Jews. But is he a Holocaust denier or does he just question? I mean, that, is that yeah, another no, the, the pejorative? Term, yeah, the term Holocaust a, denier. Very pejorative. It, it's, I haven't actually heard a breakdown of Akhmedinejad describing his denial of what did or did not happen. You know, Let, Let's talk about the New York Times. So I just wanted to clarify what I said before. I, I don't think, I don't think the whole regime, you know, in Israel should be should be wiped out. I just don't agree with the aggressive takeover of the Zionists in the West Bank and Gaza. The fact that there's sixty percent of Israeli settlements there and it's just expanding day by day. I mean, they, you know, we have the prime minister who just threw out the peace treaties and said that he he doesn't even want to discuss it anymore. So that's that's what I really disagree with. And I, you know, a lot of Muslims agree with that too in, in the entire Arab world. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, if you took a survey of of Muslim countries and what their citizens think about Israel, you know, pretty much most of their opinions would fall in line with what Ahmadinejad is saying. It's a very common belief. Even people in Israel, you know, are very anti the Israeli government. Yeah. Um, you know, one of the biggest Israeli newspapers, Haaretz, is is reports on Israeli war crimes all the time. You know, it's it's just it's it's a way to you know, obfuscate the truth and, and create this sort of tunnel vision where we, we, we see Ahmadinejad in this false context. I remember back when Obama first got into office, one of the first acts of saber rattling we did against Iran that I can recall was Hillary Clinton did a speech and she declared that the Iranian Revolutionary Guard, which is an official army in, the, in Iran, is a terrorist organization. You know, what are we trying to accomplish by doing that? When have we ever labeled the, another official army in a country like that as a terrorist organization. It's such hyperbole. Um, yeah, and, and think about, you, you told me this the other day, but the fact that Iran is is the way it is is partly because of us overthrowing, through our CIA operations, we overthrew their democratically elected leader. Well, Mosaddegh was, was the guy who was there, the democratically elected leader, and then we overthrew him um, you know, the CIA helped start a coup there um, that instated the Shah. Right. And pretty much the Iranian people, um, it created a rubber band effect where the Iranian people in the 80s, um, you know, they were so fed up with Americans meddling into their country. The people of Iran are reacting to our foreign policy, in a sense. The reason they're so... Um, they, they practice Sharia law and they're, and they're such a strong Islamic republic now is, be, is part in part because of our meddling. Absolutely. And you look at, I mean, Afghanistan and Iraq, and it's the same thing. If you look at what we've been doing there, meddling in, in, their, in their policies for years and years and years, decades. And we'll get into that in a later show about how we actually, you know, in part created the Taliban or strengthened it rather. Yeah. Zarkowski in the 70s. I mean, he... You know, even before the the first Afghan war, um, the late 80s, he was funding all these Islamic insurgents in Afghanistan. So, you know, we create and, and fund fund these external organizations for our own means at the time. And then we use them later to demonize them and go after them to for our, our new goals. Um, and segueing off that, The Guardian article that basically breaks down the mistranslation of Ahmadinejad wiping Israel off the map. The New York Times is the one who really who took that and ran with it. And they're the ones who, you know, created that firestorm in the media. And a lot of liberals totally 
re, I mean, they are like the New York Times, the New Yorker, the the Economist. They they love those publications, and they think that they're like the liberal voice, the rational liberal intellectual voice of of the of politics right now. Yeah, the the New York Times. If you think about a lot of the the, the reports that they put out. It's just it's it's strange that they still have that label. You know, before the 2004 election, they they had an exclusive story in their lap that the Bush administration was going around the FISA courts. The NSA was wiretapping people without warrants. They sat on that story because the White House asked them to. Until National, the security. Was over. Yeah. National security. National um, security. You know, if New York Times didn't sit on that story for so long, Bush might not have won that election. Well, that would have been what? a huge disastrous revelation for the Republicans. And what's what's jumping off that, which is even more hilarious, is that, well, first of all, Bush didn't really win the election. Not that Kerry was a, a better candidate. But when you're looking at the actual, you know, voter fraud, the gross voter fraud that happened during the election, Greg Palast, an extremely credible reporter, um, you know, very, very well known. He wrote a giant book. He documented the case of, of voter fraud in the 2004 election. Very, very... Um, rigorously, and he had extreme documentation showing how it was it was complete BS, and he made a book out of it. And the New York Times refused to even review his book; they would not even review it. Yeah, and the reason that that's notable is because they reviewed all of his other books yeah. before. It was like when Bush, um, you know, I guess that was going too far for them to review a book like that. Yeah, so it's like, why are we? I mean, the New York Times is totally complicit in all of this, and it's just it's just important to not. To not read, I mean, yeah, it's important to read what they're saying so we can know how to counter this propaganda, but it's really insidious. It's way more insidious than what we were talking about before. Fox News, you know, it's very obvious and blatant the past eight years what Fox News' agenda is, but with the New York Times and, and all these other publications, we just have to be very, um, just very aware of lies of omission and how dangerous those are. The New York Times started the seeds for the propaganda that Iran was caught building a nuke. A lot of these destructive talking points have come from the New York Times directly. Right. So thank you so much, everyone, for listening to our third edition of Media Roots Radio with Abby and Robbie Martin. Please visit our SoundCloud link on MediaRoots.org under the Listen tab, and you can follow along with all of the things that we've mentioned on the show today. There's an interactive timeline where you can follow along with the resources and find out more information about the music that we played during the show. So visit MediaRoots.org. Thanks for listening, everybody. See you next week. It's a long road when you're on your own. And it hurts when they tear your dreams apart. And every new town just seems to bring you down. Trying to find. Can break your heart. It's a
So. Oh.